All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the EM Over Easy podcast. I'm Andy Little. My other host, Drew Kalnau, is here with me. Good day. Our co-host, John Casey, is with us again. Hello. And we've got two guests. One is actually one of the blog writers for us, Patricia Capone, one of our med students. Hey. And special guest, Mark Ropapersi, core faculty for the St. Joe's EM Residency in Patterson, New Jersey, talking to us today for this clinical grind about COVID misinformation. Marco, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. For this episode, you really wanted to talk about something that I think we all have had to deal with in clinical medicine. You know, we haven't talked about COVID in a while, and I think we've avoided it for a reason, partially because I, not that we think it's going to go away, but we kind of want it to go away and we want to quit. But it's going nowhere fast. We want to quit talking about it. But I like when we, when you reached out to be on the show, you brought up this idea of speaking about misinformation and the role it has played and really the plague it is in and of itself. I feel like COVID's a plague. And then the misinformation about COVID is a plague in of itself. Um, a so double I, plague, Andy. That's a double plague. This is yeah. this is not going to incite enthusiasm about the happiness of this episode. We've we've now lost all our listeners. And, yes. Uh, great. Okay. I think the COVID pandemic. Marco, thanks like- so much for joining us for an episode no one's going to listen to. This is going to be amazing. Yeah, I think the quote, Andy, is supposed to be a plague on both your houses, not a double plague upon your single, poorly staffed rudimentarily non-functional house. All right. So with that premise in mind, we've got, we've <laughs> so, aired the grievances. So much to unpack. Marco, when, when you, because I know when you, I've read the outline. So when you sat down, I liked the way you went about this. So when you think about misinformation, uh, go for it. Like, let us know where, where you, where to start. Well, I think, I think it's important to, to highlight that you called it two plagues because, because I would agree with you. But I, I do think that, the COVID-19 pandemic is likely to end much sooner than the, the misinformation pandemic. I think that it's it's here to stay. And whether it's COVID-19 or, or something else, we're going to likely be dealing with this for the rest of our career. But I just want to take us in with a little bit of numbers and, and some of the introduction. In 2019, uh, the World Health Organization listed vaccine hesitancy as a top 10 threat to global health. And I was actually pretty alarmed because when I wrote this outline, it was November 1st, and we had to change some of the numbers today. And it's pretty shocking just to see how the disparity in the numbers in just a few months. I mean, from February to November, we had uh, 10 million infections and about 200,000 deaths. And since I had to redo the outline today, we now have from November to the end of January, 25.3 million infections with 420,000 deaths. I mean, approximately 3,000 Americans are dying every single day from COVID-19. And last week or a few weeks ago, I think it was 4,000 Americans were dying daily. And if you put that into perspective, that's more people than died in World War II. And even more so is more people are dying every single day than those Americans who were killed in the attacks on World Trade Center. An American dies every 30 seconds. And if we look at the peak last week, an American was dying from COVID-19 nearly every 20 seconds. And we have 4% of the world's population and 20% of the, uh, the COVID-19 related deaths. And this is the United States of America. To say that we're handling this poorly is, is vastly understating our response. Yeah. And just to give it an instant frame of reference, right? And the time it took you to give those stats, three more Americans lost their lives. It's, it's, it's shocking and, and eye-opening how bad the response has been. Now, the other side of that is that 
when we start to look at, at the vaccine hesitancy and misinformation, there's been quite a few polls. There's been the Associated Press, there's been uh, NPR, there's been Gallup polls, and they've actually looked at Americans and, and what their plans are as far as vaccination. And less than half Americans reportedly plan to get the vaccine. And the pandemic has disproportionately affected minorities. Black Americans are two times more likely to die from COVID-19 than white Americans, but yet less than 25% plan to get vaccinated. Now, it used to be that a lot of this medical information that we use to make medical decisions like vaccines, it was, it was held in journals and, and textbooks. And that information was held to a select few in the medical community. But now all this information, it's widely available on the internet. I mean, we've all seen this. Patients come in and they'll check the internet for, for medical advice. And, and that can lead to some confusion. Many of our patients, they don't have the experience or the expertise to parse through some of these journals. And we're not even talking about predatory journals and, and uh, publication by press release and, and all those problems. I mean, these are just things that they're popping up on the internet. And these searches, they can lead them to um, even more detrimental sources like anti-vaccine blogs or social media accounts and celebrities who have taken up anti-vaccine sentiment. And some of these uh, celebrities, I mean, if you just look at even our high-ranking politicians, they have more than 100 million followers. So these messages have vast reach. So one of the things that you talk about is a message and something that I have struggled with with misinformation, uh, particularly over the past year since we've been dealing with COVID, is we, we label this misinformation. And we feel very confident in the fact that we are providing good, sound information when we're discussing with our friends, with our families, with each other, that we have read the information. And by we, I'm, I'm simply talking about the five of us on this podcast right now. But there's a problem because... The person I might be talking to who believes something different believes that I am the one that is misguided, that I have the misinformation. And it's really an issue that now we live in information silos, right? 30 years ago, we got our information from very few sources. There was you know, radio broadcast, newspapers, and, and TV. And TV was just a few channels with the nightly news that maybe one was a little left, one was a little right, but... but all for the most part centrist. And, you know, newspapers and, and newsletters and stuff probably were of, of a central spectrum also with a little left or a little right leaning. There's always been some fringe stuff. But now, and, and at the time, you know, up until maybe just a decade or two ago, it was hard to consume information without getting a balanced opinion as to what was going on. But today, we can get information from whatever source we want and never experience the alternative view whether it's misinformation or whether it's just truly an alternative view. And you can go so far down a rabbit hole that all you see truly is the misinformation that now all of a sudden you start to believe because you do not escape an information silo. And I have no idea, no idea other than just trying to, to spread the good gospel, how we break this, this momentum that we have gained as far as how we gather information individually. Yeah, I think you highlighted on, on uh, some great points. I think one of the things, and not to go off on a tangent with social media and some of these big companies, but one of the things that they use is they use these things called content personalization algorithms. So you're absolutely right. Once you click on some anti-vaccination blog, the algorithm knows that you clicked on it. And once you like it, um, the, the algorithm knows that you like it. So it will just continuously feed you these same exact resources over and over and over. 
and it actually amplifies that message. So it makes a person who's just maybe looking for some information and maybe stumbled across a blog, it makes them think that, oh, even this fringe view that maybe only be accepted by a select few or is, is accepted by many because you start getting bombarded with all these, these blogs um, about uh, these anti-vaccination views or this misinformation. And you did mention something earlier too that regarding misinformation, there, there's actually two kinds. So misinformation is is different than disinformation. I think that's an important distinction. Disinformation is is information that's purposely falsified with the intention to have either um, gain money, so you're trying to sell something, so you're putting out false information, or maybe you're trying to win an election or rise to political power. So there, there's some incentive to be gained. That's why you're spreading the incorrect information. Where misinformation, which is most of what we see, is misinformation that's just spread without really and a purpose to intentionally dissuade or falsify information. And that's what we're seeing on social media, where you just share a link to something that may be inaccurate, but uh, you haven't double-checked it yourself. And that actually spreads like wildfire as well. And earlier, you had also mentioned something about where we get our information. And, and I think that's important because before, when people had this anti-vaccination sentiment and it's, none of it's new. I mean, it's been around since vaccines have been around. I think I mentioned this earlier in the in the blog post outline, but Reverend Edmund Massey in England, he called them diabolical operations in a sermon called The Dangerous and Sinful Practice of Inoculation. And that was in 1772. I think it was 20 years about before the first vaccination was actually released. So none of this is new. I think what's new is that the amplification of the message is just so much broader. You can say something and reach millions and millions of people, where before you might only just reach a few people in your in your local area. Yeah, I love the idea to think that this is not a new thing. When I talk to people about COVID, I I like to go back to the you know I I go back to the Spanish flu and but it's amazing how they use similar tactics that was even happened in the 1920s about wearing masks and about being against public gatherings. So where a lot of this, the tactics are old. It's just that there are new players using the same old tactics. And I love that you bring up the blogs. And it's again, we are a podcast that has a blog, but please don't use our blog for medical advice. I think that there's, there is a difference between, oh, because it's on the internet, the average person believes it has some validity to it versus, oh, it comes out of a journal, which makes the five of us excited because it's been peer-reviewed, it's been vetted, and it's been validated. Exactly right, Andy. And a parallel that I frequently think about with EMS being such a large part of my life was seatbelt use, right? Seatbelt was very much the same thing. There was a, a very large push against it, a grassroots effort. This is violating my individual rights. And eventually... You know, now most people reasonably wear their seatbelts most of the time, and, and it's it's really not a controversial content anymore. And to to Marco's point, I I really uh, there's a there's a political term uh, not to take it down the politics realm, but I, but what I like is because of how it differentiates something that Marco was talking about, which is uh, there, there used to be this term that was used all the time in the media, and as Drew pointed out, when you had a a little bit leaning left or a little bit leaning right uh, news organization. It was called spin, where we all agreed on the same fundamental fact, but we just put a different take on it, right? So, for example, with vaccines, one might say, well, one person out of 14 million had an anaphylactic reaction. That's an incredibly small number, and the benefit of the vaccine way outweighs the individual perchance risk of getting it. But someone who, who doesn't like it and wants to put a different spin would say, one person having an anaphylactic reaction to something is one too many. 
right? But you didn't argue over the central premise that one out of 14 million. And I think that's the hardest part now with the opening of social media in so many places to get information is that the very fundamental facts are sometimes so obfuscated that you can't really make good decisions. And I find that with some health material as a physician. So if you're, if you're not a physician, I can imagine how easy that is. And then it starts to fall back to just what you hear the most, right? Who has the loudest voice? So Marco, you, you, you made some great points there and I, I really appreciate you highlighting those differences. So how do we go on from clearly recognizing that misinformation exists to starting to attack it? Like what, what is our role or what can we do as educators, whether it is amongst other physicians or just in the general public to, to try to decrease misinformation and maybe promote something that we believe strongly in, which I think uh, we all can say on here is vaccination. I mean, this is one of the mechanisms that gets us out of this pandemic, right? It is not the only one, uh, but it is a very, very powerful one that is going to help us uh, begin whatever our return to normal is going to be much quicker than if we did not have this tool available. But how do we get people to take it? How do we get the public to believe in it? And, and how do we get our message to be stronger than the alternative? Those are all great questions. And, and, and I think we have to understand or dissect the message that they're, that they're using and what exactly they do and how it works. And we, as you start to dissect it, you can see we can maybe take some of these ideas and mimic them and, and make our messages just as powerful. But one of the things they do is that they use stories. They use these emotional stories from either parents. If we look at our latest anti-vaccination movement, which is the autism and MMR one, a lot of these blogs, they put these very emotional stories from parents who believe that their child was afflicted with autism or some other vaccine-related illness. And they're often, you can't refute them. You can't refute a parent's story of what happened to their child. And if we, if we break it down, there was a New York Times bestseller called Make It Stick. It was by Chip and Dan Heath a couple of years ago. And they actually looked into what makes an idea sticky. And they said that sticky ideas are simple. I mean, what's simpler than vaccines cause autism? Or simple ideas are unexpected. Unexpected like a vaccination that's supposed to protect millions of people is actually harming children or harming people. And simple ideas are concrete. Well, before I took this vaccine, I was fine. And now afterwards, I developed you know, some strange condition. And simple ideas are credible. What's more credible than the family member of a loved one who believes that they've been harmed by some medication? And they're also emotional. I mean, these, these stories are, are they're heartwarming. Who can't relate and empathize with a parent or a family member who has somebody suffering from COVID-19 or, or any of these other uh, uh, disease processes, which we hope to prevent with vaccines? And most of all, they, they use fear-based messages. So they're actually playing on these emotions and trying to create fear and some doubt that the vaccine will, will work or the vaccine will cause harm or maybe it can cause the illness. And as we start to look, we also find some of the things we mentioned about before with, with social media. Right now, more than 50 million people follow anti-vaccination blogs on social media websites like Facebook and YouTube. And they get paid more than $1 billion in revenue just from advertising to those followers from those groups. And if we look at just even Google searches 
uh, during the MMR uh, anti-vaccine movement, if you were to just type in vaccination and immunization into a Google search, the first 100 sites found, 43% of them were anti-vaccination sites. So even if you were just hoping to find some basic information, you were going to get steered down a rabbit hole potentially of incorrect information. Now, another study looked at YouTube videos, and they found that 32% of YouTube videos opposed vaccinations. And those videos actually had higher ratings and they had more uh, views than uh, than the pro-vaccine videos. And if you look at another paper, they looked at uh, Twitter and they just searched for all uh, uh, tweets that, that contained the words vaccine in them. And they found that 50% of tweets regarding vaccines contained anti-vaccination information. And then again, you know, we mentioned this already, but you see these celebrities like uh, Jenny McCarthy and uh, even politicians, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Donald Trump, Robert De Niro, Jessica Biel, they all have expressed anti-vaccination to their millions and millions of followers on social media. But as I was mentioning, we can do some things too. We can take a page from their book. So we can make our stories sticky too. And I think that may be hard for some physicians and, and healthcare professionals. I mean, we are science-based, we're evidence-based. And most of us feel that anecdotes, they're not, they're not evidence. But if we think back to our residency training and even uh, sick patients that we've taken care of on shift, I mean, all of us can remember vividly the patient where we got to float a transvenous pacer or that time we got to perform a cricothyroidotomy on a person with angioedema or that difficult joint reduction. Now, these, these anecdotes, they're not evidence, but they're often more memorable and they're more effective as teaching tools for our patients. Yeah, Marco, I love that you bring that up because I feel like in the conversations that I've had with family members and friends trying to discredit misinformation, throwing numbers at them isn't helpful. You know, we, we the stats you shared when we started, that some people have died, like those numbers aren't helpful. But if I can tell a story about a family who was ravaged by COVID, and I can talk about how we saw dad on Monday, and we saw mom on Wednesday, and we saw daughter on Friday, and we saw son the next week, all of them subsequently were intubated, all of them passed it. Like that one string of anecdotes is significantly more powerful to where I remember having a conversation with a family member to where at the beginning of the conversation it was, they really questioned what COVID was. And they were also even more questioning, do I get a vaccine to where the end? They're like, man, this is real. I should probably look more into getting like just that simple anecdote. I didn't give them the New England Journal publications. I didn't mention anybody's name. I just told a story. Um, and I think that that's where you start with some of these people as you just get personal and you say, look, I get it that you haven't had this experience, but let me tell you my experience, because that's all the people on the other side are doing. One thing I think you're definitely hitting on there is is that power of that story. I think Patricia could probably speak to that a little bit, um, because right now going through medical school, I can just imagine uh, the fear that's out there about the unknown. And I'm sure you get lots of factual information from your school and lots of factual information from websites and guidance from places like ASAP and things like that. But I bet it doesn't take much of one or two people telling a story of either something really horrific that happened to them or something really good that happened to them. And I would imagine it, uh, it can ignite a fire pretty quickly in the student groups. Yeah, I think it's just hard right now because even just from the standpoint of, okay, I'm not a doctor yet, but everyone, fr family and friends, like expects you to know everything that there is to know. And that hasn't changed since COVID. Like that's always been the case. But now it just seems ever more like heavy. It, you know, and, and we have a responsibility, I think, as med students and future 
healthcare providers to be like, okay, no, we need to stop the misinformation. But sometimes, kind of like we were saying, you know, where do we get the good information? Because there's so much turnover um, of information. And I think as far as like vaccines go, it's, I think being out on rotation and kind of like recently sitting at the nurse's station and listening to, you know, some other healthcare providers, some healthcare providers that even will say that they are not getting the vaccine. And it's like, okay, well, what do I do with that? And just kind of how do I approach that? Because it's like, no, 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 no. Like we need to be setting the example. We need to be like doing, you know, it can't be a say, you know, do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. Like we all have to buy in. So yeah, I think that highlights one of the things is that about misinformation, that if you can even sow a little bit of doubt in there, I think people are always going to err on the side of perceived caution. You know, it's like, oh, if there's even like a small chance that the vaccine is going to do something and it's very alarming. I think uh, one of my buddies at, told me at his shop, 40 percent of the inpatient nurses refuse the vaccine. That's so alarming to me, because when I think about us as physicians and, and think about how often we're in the rooms, which is quite a bit, but I don't think anybody, any of us on here would say that the nurses aren't in the room probably two or three times more than us. And the fact that they're willing to go in the room without a vaccine over and over and over and, and draw blood or, or give three or four different rounds of medicines because we the person's not doing well and we added something else. And I just thought that was so alarming. And, and it really highlights the importance of us talking about this on this platform and, and just getting the message out there. But also wanted to highlight a few things. What I found in my research is that it's pretty surprising. And a lot of this stuff comes from, again, autism MMR, because that's been the most recent movement. And I'm sure as time passes, we'll learn a lot more about, about this current anti-vaccination movement. But one of the things that I found surprising was that when uh, patients were approached regarding their anti-vaccination sentiment, it actually made them take a much stronger belief in their anti-vaccination sentiment, and that the literature actually shows that if you try to attack the belief, they, they get defensive. So it's important for us to make sure that we're not attacking them or being that it can be perceived that we're attacking them. I don't think anybody on here is going to say, oh, that's a silly belief or that's a dumb belief. But even just saying you're wrong or something like that is enough for them to get defensive and just make it make them believe it more more uh, firmly. So what we should be doing is focusing on the disease processes, right? We should focus on the disease itself and how it's harming people, like Andy was mentioning in his anecdote. And there was a paper about MMR and autism that they found that they were able to change the patient's attitudes towards vaccine when they read a written story from a mom's perspective about her child who had contacted measles, they showed that patient a picture of a child with measles infection, and they gave them three warnings about possible bad outcomes that could come if your child uh, contracted measles. And then they were able to, to get some better views. They also did a study with college students, and they actually had college students who had anti-vaccination beliefs sit down for in-person interviews with people who had contracted vaccine-preventable diseases, and just being able to sit down and see another human being across from you who had suffered with this disease process, was a, they were able to empathize with that person and, and get them to change their views as opposed to just reading some stat on Twitter or whatever website that you want to go to. I think the part that's so interesting to me and is 
really disheartening in a lot of ways is that we have to fight sensationalism with sensationalism as opposed to fight it with facts. And that's what this misinformation movement that we're really experiencing of, and I think we're just at the precipice of, I, I think this is only going to get worse, is is that what we believe in and the information that we have as a scientist to say, no, this is what it is, is not the way that you fight misinformation and that, that you have to fight it in those manners that you speak of. But but you're absolutely right. And I think that you you really highlight one of the mechanisms in which we're going to, as a medical community that believes in vaccination or or whatever the next thing is, you know, mask wearing or whatever is, is we have to address it not just with scientific facts on our side, but with the sensational stories that support our side of it as well. Because otherwise, there's just really no great way to to drive home uh, this information and, and really change people's minds. Marco, I, I think this is a really great discussion and something we're going to have time and time again as we go forward. Uh, before we finish up, any take-home points you want to give our listeners on just how we can can really hopefully nail home what, what we think is the right side of the medicine here? Absolutely. I think it's important to know there is no one-size-fits-all for counseling. We have to try to gauge what our patients are going to be receptive to and use the method that works best for them. But we do have to practice this like any other skill we would. And whether that's making scripts, I mean, I actually use scripts. I use scripts for a lot of things, as I'm sure most of you do, whether it's for TPA or procedure. We may need to develop a script of our own for for our patients with COVID and for vaccinations and, and different things like that. The other thing, it's critically important that we stay up to date on the information. Now, this is really hard because... There's hundreds of thousands of articles coming out on COVID. I feel like uh, it's just every single day, and you don't know which information is accurate or, what, or which is not. One of the good things about foam and, and, and social media is it's actually allowed for the democratization of, of medical information. So you find some trusted resources like Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine or Rebel EM or MCRIT, and, and they're breaking down this information for us so you can just absorb a little bite-sized bit and they can highlight some, some things that maybe you didn't think about. And the other thing I actually use is I use an RSS feeder. I use Feedly. And I actually will will sign up for all these different trusted resources. And you can even sign up for Journal Watch on New England Journal and JAMA. So you can just get these little bite-sized uh, bits of these these latest groundbreaking articles. And I'll sign up for these those uh, blog posts, those blogs that I just mentioned. And that's the way that you're going to stay up because there's just too, Im- too much information out there. And it's impossible to know uh, sometimes the, just the speed and veracity with uh, everything is coming out. So I would say get a script down, download Feedly for your computer or your your smartphone and log in and register for some of these trusted blogs and trusted sources and they can give you this information. And then just make sure you practice, 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 practice like you would any other procedure. And if we don't take this seriously, then we're just going to remain one more voice in an otherwise crowded room. Marco, I think that's great advice. And, and to end on a positive note, we are starting to see that needle shift towards people wanting to get vaccinated uh, now that we're rolling out the vaccine campaign and we're seeing, um, you know, most people not have serious side effects and the evidence continue to support it. And we're having these conversations also. If we can continue to do this and even if we can, can just convince one more person to get the vaccine than would have previously not gotten it, we're doing our part. Thank you so much for joining us today on Email Over Easy and bringing this conversation uh, to the forefront. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a blast and I hope to meet you guys in person soon when all of this ends. Oh, we look forward to that. John and Patricia, thanks as always for joining us on M Over Easy. Andy, uh, just keep doing you, buddy. Well, hey, you made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. 
Don't forget, we are the official podcasting partner of the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians, or the ACOP for short. To learn more about this great organization and look for live conference offerings over the calendar year, visit acoap.org.